So it's like I still have that fire and that passion for helping young people. And I want them to empower themselves because I truly believe that anyone, no matter their age or their income, can achieve financial independence. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Today, we have on Rachel Richards, the founder of Money Honey and Real Estate Investor. But before we get into all that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Yeah, this weekend, as always, had to hit up some live music, so had two different concerts. But for the rest of the weekend, we were keeping it a little calm because we had a big day today, and that was closing on our first house. So there's the never-ending debate of renting versus owning, and uh, I'm about to see the other side of the coin, but we're excited about it, excited to get a little more space, excited to be able to have people over. So if you're ever in Austin, hit me up. We'll have a pizza party. It'll be a good time. How about you, Cody? Well, I'll definitely have to take you off on the offer very soon because I actually flew into Austin yesterday and we'll be hanging out this entire week at FinCon. This past weekend, I was actually down in Miami. We have a little tradition with some of my college roommates. Two of them are huge Buffalo Bills fans and usually we go to the Buffalo game and the Buffalo Bills happen to be playing the Dolphins in Miami. So we ended up going to that game. It worked out perfectly because I flew directly from Miami to FinCon. It's a wild weekend. I got to tell you, those Bills Mafia fans are absolutely crazy. A lot of broken tables, but now onto some more serious stuff this week at FinCon, connecting with some like-minded people, content creators, and I'm looking forward to it. But Justin, that's enough about our personal updates. Let's talk about the amazing guest we had on today, and that is Rachel Richards from Money Honey. Rachel was a former financial advisor who knew that she didn't really want to do that for the rest of her life. She wanted to branch out. She wanted to start doing her own thing. And the first foray she kind of got into that world of side hustling and passive income was kind of two crazy things at the same time, writing her first book, which was titled Money Honey, and also getting her first rental property in Louisville, Kentucky. In this episode, we get into how that initial thing that Rachel has built has turned into a multi-six-figure business. We talk about how to you know start something, build a brand around that idea. She also shares some publishing tips for people who are thinking of whether it's writing a book or whether it's just creating content. And she even shares a bit about her real estate investing journey. Yeah, Cody Rachel's definitely got some great tips. And if you like any of the things that Cody was just mentioning there, you can get more of that information from Rachel over at thefyshow.com slash Rachel. That's thefyshow.com slash R-A-C-H-E-L. Take it away, Rachel. I was largely self-taught. So it's not that I grew up in a household where I learned about it. But I was motivated to learn about it. So in sixth grade was my first memory of learning about money. And I read this book called The Molly Fool's Guide for Teens, How to Have More Money Than Your Parents Ever Dreamed Of. And I was like, well, that sounds cool. What kid wouldn't want that? So that's the first book I read. And it introduced me to compound interest and all these different concepts. I was super excited. And then the other thing that motivated me to learn is just that I grew up in a very wealthy county. It was a very unrealistic bubble to grow up in. And just to give you some context, like some of the kids in my high school would get brand new BMWs when they turned 16. My family was not operating that way. We always lived on a strict budget. We didn't go out on family trips, let alone even going out to eat at restaurants. So from a young age, I felt like I didn't fit in. And that's not the way you want to feel in middle school and in high school. And so I realized back then that I didn't want to end up like everyone else struggling with money. 
I didn't want to have to operate on a strict budget or live paycheck to paycheck or borrow money from my family and friends. So I realized what I did then would either set me up for wealth or for poverty. And I wanted to be different than everybody else struggling. So that's kind of what set my passion and sparked the fire. And I just started reading every book that I could. And we always love to kind of dive into these parts, like the mentality and what led you to where you are now. I'm just kind of curious. So you were sitting there, you're seeing a lot of wealth around you. Your parents either didn't have it or at least didn't let you enjoy it, whatever the case may be. When you started getting really motivated, was it more to like make sure that you never ended up paycheck to paycheck? Or at the time when it started, was it more like, I want to get the BMW, like I want the fancy things? I would say it was more out of fear. It was more that I grew up in this household where money was always a stressor and we were always trying to figure out as a, as a family how to navigate the, you know, not having enough cars for four or five different drivers or not having enough money to do things. And so I had this fear and this limiting belief growing up that I didn't have enough money to take care of myself and I didn't have enough money to take care of the people I cared about if they ever needed help. So, you know, they say fear can be paralyzing or motivating. Luckily for me, it was very motivating. And so something you talk a lot about now, and I'm going to relate this back to kind of early Rachel, is passive income. And most of us, you know, coming out of high school, coming out of college, whatever your situation may be, don't really understand that passive income is possible. Most of us have this mentality that we need to be trading our time for money. We're working X number of hours per week to make this paycheck. Could you talk a little bit about what that was like for you coming out of college? What was that first job like? When did you actually discover this passive income thing? Yeah, for sure. I feel like passive income has become this buzzword over the last few years. And there's so many misconceptions about it. So I'm glad you're asking. I don't remember when I first learned about it. I do remember when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in high school. That was the first time that I'd been kind of exposed to real estate investing. And so at first I was like, well, this is my way for achieving financial independence. I didn't know then that there's tons of other passive income streams out there. But sometime I would say around 2018, which was after I bought my first rental and after I self-published my first book. I would say that's when I became obsessed with passive income and I wanted to learn everything about it. And there were just, there's a few things that clicked for me in my mind because the traditional way we've approached retirement is what I call the nest egg theory. And basically we're taught to work 40 years of our lives, nine to five job, invest in mutual funds, save up this huge amount of money, this nest egg, so that we can live off of that for the rest of our lives. And that used to work really well. It did. It's just that times have changed and the way we've approached retirement really hasn't changed at all. So for example, the cost of college has ballooned, placing an enormous burden on our generation. And pensions are a thing of the past. And the most alarming thing is that the Social Security Trust Fund is projected to be fully depleted by the year 2035. So we can't even count on, on that anymore. Also, there's statistics that show that millennials will need to accumulate at least $2 million by age 65 in order to retire, which is crazy to me. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I don't know many multimillionaires, right? So the thought of trying to save up millions of dollars is very overwhelming and very daunting. So when I heard about passive income and what it is, I got really excited because passive income is money that is earned with little to no ongoing effort. And the epiphany I had is that once your passive income exceeds your living expenses, you're retired, you're financially independent. So that's what I started working towards. And just kind of poking at that a little bit, I'm curious. So do you not consider investments and in the, in the interest that you could pull off of them passive? 
Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I definitely do. I think that one of the best passive income streams is portfolio income. It's just that you typically have to have such a large amount of money to generate meaningful revenue. So if there's other way, like I think it's easier to come up with five or six or $8,000 a month in passive income through other means than it is to save $2 million so I can live off my portfolio income. So when you do get that first taste of passive income, you mentioned the book royalties and that first rental property. You know, what percentage of, I don't know what you were doing at the time for money, what you're working a traditional job and all of a sudden you get these two streams and you just quit cold turkey because you realize this is a thing? Or did it take a few years to kind of build up the passive income confidence, I guess? Oh, yeah. It took some time. I didn't want to just quit my job without... I wanted to replace my full-time income. That was kind of my goal initially to quit my job. And then I got to that point and then felt that that still wasn't secure enough for whatever reason. So then my husband and I were like, well, let's get to $10,000 a month in passive income and then I'll quit my full-time job. But if you back up to kind of right after I graduated college, I wasn't making a lot of money. I was making $36,000 and then $32,000 in my job after that. I never made six figures in a job or a career and I'm not a trust fund baby. So in 2017, a few years after I graduated from college, that's when we started creating passive income streams. So we purchased that first rental property. It was a duplex in Louisville, Kentucky. I self-published my first book. Between those couple things, I th- we were probably only making one or 2000 a month, I would say, in profit from our passive income. And then by 2019, we were making $10,000 a month in passive income. And that's the year that I quit my job. So for two years, it was the most stressful two years of my life because we were both working full-time, 40-hour weeks. We were acquiring rental properties on the weekends and managing our tenants. And I was writing my books in the evenings. And I just, sometimes I look back on that period of my life and I'm like, I don't know how I did that. It was the hardest period of my life for sure, but well worth it. (laughs) (laughs) One thing we kind of nonchalantly went by was that first book. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, okay, you said you got like the one rental property when you when the book is kind of coming out, like it sounds like you're just getting started. And I know, like, I struggle with things like the imposter syndrome. What made you think that you needed to write a book that you had something worthwhile for people to read? So that's I'm so glad you asked about imposter syndrome, because I almost didn't write my first book because of it. But with Money, Honey, I had already been a financial advisor previously. And so all my friends and family came to me for financial advice, which was great because that's what I love to do. At the same time, I began to wonder, well, why aren't they reading books or learning on their own? And then I realized, oh, yeah, that's because personal finance is boring, right? For most people, it's intimidating and complex and overwhelming. So I thought to myself, how can I make this topic sassy and fun and simple? And that's where the idea for Money, Honey came from. It's really something that... I felt compelled to write. It's almost something that I just envisioned that I was writing for my best friend. And so when I started, I was very excited. It was this passion project. I didn't know, like, I didn't really do it for money. I just wanted to do it. And then four months in, I quit writing the book because by then I had done a complete mental 180 and I was telling myself things like, who do you think you are, Rachel, to write a book on finance? Who's going to listen? Your writing is crap. This is going to be an embarrassment. So Clearly, I was being very nice to myself. But because of that, I quit writing the book. I had no intention of ever picking it back up again. And then I finally sat down with a good friend and had lunch with her. And I kind of confessed to her my idea. And she said, Rachel, you need to finish what you set out to do. You're really onto something here. 
So she gave me just enough encouragement that I decided to pick it back up. And in the end, the only reason I went through with publishing it is because I told myself, if I can just help one person, that's all I want to do. And I think because I had those intentions of I just wanted to help people, I really wasn't, I didn't think it was going to take off and make a bunch of money. If my intention was to make a bunch of money, I think my readers would have seen right through that and it wouldn't have done as well. But to my surprise, it took off and I've built this whole business around it. So staying on the topic of books, and I know you've actually since published a second book in 2019, The Passive Income Aggressive Retirement, I believe is the name. Yes. Yes. I just love to hear some of the lessons you've learned because we do have people who have written books who are maybe thinking about writing books or just content in general. And I'm sure you have some huge lessons that you learned. You wish 2017, Rachel, really knew the stuff that 2019 Rachel knew when she was self-publishing the second book. Oh my gosh, so many lessons, (laughs) so many lessons. You know, there's a statistic that something like 83% of Americans have this dream of writing a book. Like it's on on their bucket list. So I think it's something that a lot of people want to do. One thing I would say is, I think a lot of people want to become a coach or offer a service or create a course or write a book. And sometimes it's like in their self-interest. It's like, oh, well, I like this topic and I want to teach about it. So this is what I'm going to do. But you really need to look at the market and think about what problem are you solving for people? You know, what value are you adding? Like, where is there a hole in the market? And where and how can you fill that hole? And for me at the time in 2017, I felt like all the personal finance books were boring and also like written by older men. And there just wasn't a lot of content written by a young woman. So I was like, I think I can do this and just offer something unique. So it really comes down to having a unique value perspective. You know, why would someone buy your book over the thousands of other books that are already out there? And if you can't articulate that well, you're going to have a hard time selling it. So that's the first big lesson, I would say. Another lesson that I learned is, and this is something I'm still really bad with, but I can be too frugal and too cheap. And anything taken to an extreme is bad, right? But typically people overspend and that's where they get into financial trouble. But you can also be too frugal and that can sometimes cost you more money in the long run. So with Money Honey, one of the things that I like to tell people is, you know, hey, I I self-published this with with under $600. That's all I spent. And that's great. And so it tells people you can do it with not a lot of money. But also if I had more money, if I was willing to spend more money at the time, I think it would have done even better. You know, there are people that you need to have on your team, including a really good editor, a really good cover designer, and a really good interior book formatter. Now I was smart enough that I did get a good editor at the time, but the other two I didn't. So the original version of Money Honey, I designed the cover. And I don't, I don't, you could probably find it somewhere out there, but it looks like crap. And since then, I've re, you know, I had somebody redo the cover. And same with the interior formatting. It was just something that I was like, oh, I'm going to do this myself. I can figure it out. And regretted that immediately after spending like 24 hours straight trying to format my book within 24 hours of launch. So I would just say set a realistic budget. And be willing to invest in yourself because sometimes it does make more it does make more sense to spend money on professionals. And speaking of some of those places like you could invest money to make the book even more successful, I'm curious like how you found eyeballs for the book, right? Like how people discovered the book in the first place, how you you know, you got people interested in it. It really started in this Facebook group that I was in. And it was this Facebook group that had like ten thousand female millennials which just happened to be my target audience was female millennials. That's who I was writing the book for. 
And no one knew who I was back then. I didn't have a platform. I didn't have anything going for me. But I was obsessed with helping people with finance. And it was like a political group, but every now and then a finance question would come up and I would jump on and I would say, hey, I'm Rachel. I'm a former financial advisor. Here's what I think. And I would type out a really long, helpful response. And people really appreciated that. So after doing that enough times, if somebody posted a question, other people would start to tag me. And they would say, oh, you need to ask Rachel or, oh, Rachel's your girl. So after a few months, I kind of had this credibility and this trust in this group where I almost was their go-to financial expert. And I had been doing this for months before I even thought of writing a book. So when I came up with the idea for Money Honey, I kind of bounced it off them. I was like, hey, here's what I'm thinking about. What do you guys think? They were like, oh my gosh, this would be amazing. You make it so simple to understand. Please do this. And then I kept going back to this group for market research. And I would say, hey, help me pick out a title. Or what do you think of this subtitle? And so they became so invested in the success of this book that when it came time to launch, it was almost like they were my launch team. Like they wanted to share it. They wanted to promote it. They wanted to review it. They were already excited. They already trusted me. And that's kind of how I built my initial platform was out of that Facebook group. That's actually what I was going to ask next is kind of like, okay, you can write a book. You started investing in properties, but fostering and building a community is a whole different beast. Like you typically have to have a website. You probably want some type of opt-in on your website, whether it's a freebie or a mini course or something like that, just to get people in your ecosystem and start listening to you. I see now that you have multiple programs, you have a mastermind, you have a blog. What did the kind of next steps of Money Honey look like? Like, how did you start building out the platform for yourself? Yeah, it's funny because looking back, I, I really didn't know what I was doing at all. I mean, I didn't have a website for the first year that I had launched my book. And I... I just want to tell people, like, don't be overwhelmed by trying to build out this website and the sales funnel and have all these other products and courses because it can feel very overwhelming when you're like, well, how am I possibly going to have all that? It's just you just have to start with something somewhere. And for me, it was the book. One thing I did right is that I had enough foresight to think of building an email list, at least. So I put a freebie in my book, Money Honey, where people could down my budgeting worksheets and my net worth tracker. And so I had a link that they could go to to sign up for my email list. So that was great. I had people signing up for my email list. But then I I wasn't sending any emails or fostering any kind of ongoing relationship. So I didn't really do much with it. I mean, there's just so many things I didn't know. And I just learned as I went. And I think that's what you have to do as an entrepreneur or author. Just put something out there and learn as you go. And in terms of building a platform, you really need to understand who is your target reader? And be very specific. Like I say female millennials, but I had a a sheet of paper and it was like 25-year-old single woman who's making 40,000 a year. You know, like I had this actual avatar outlined and I wrote the book for that person. And I think because it was so specifically targeted, it just resonated well with people. And of course, guys read it too and older people read it and that's great. But yeah, I would say think about your target audience and where they are and how can you get in front of them. So for me starting out, it was that Facebook group and I was able to add value there. For somebody else, it might be, you know, can I get a a guest on a podcast or can I go on some other website, some other social media where I can add value? So those are just some tips, I would say, to answer your question. And since then, has it always been a fairly 50-50 like, hey, I'm an author and I'm a real estate investor or have you kind of leaned heavily into one area or the other more so? You know, it's changed over time. So in 2017 and 2018, we were massively building up our rental portfolio. 
And so we were making, by the end of 2018, $10,000 a month in passive income, which was like 90% from our rental properties. And I was making, maybe making 1000 a month for money, honey. Then though, in 2019, once I was able to quit my job, I was like, I'm going to go full force in my business. And it's kind of turned into the opposite direction now where I'm making like so much more money from my money, honey business and my books and my courses. And we've actually sold a few of our rentals. So we're making a lot less from that, from the rental properties now. And in terms of the rental property acquisition phase, when it seems like you were just scooping them off left and right, where were you getting the down payments for these properties? I know you and your husband were both working and obviously you already have a saver mindset, but I know you had over or up to 40 rental units at one point. Like that is a whole lot of money in down payments. Yeah, for sure. And it was definitely a big advantage that we were working together and that I had somebody I could partner with, essentially. Basically, we can rewind to college. I paid my way through school selling Cutco cutlery. Have you all heard of Cutco knives? Yeah, I have. (laughs) So that's what I did. And I paid my way through school, graduated without debt. My husband is a veteran and he used his military benefits to pay for school. So we didn't have any student debt. And already that just set us far ahead. And we were able to save a lot of money because of that even though at the time, neither of us were making six figures. Later, I think by 2017, I think my husband was making six figures by then. But so we didn't have debt. We were frugal. We still tried to save like half of our income. I mean, even before I met Andrew, when I was making 36 grand, I was saving half of my income just because I was so frugal. And we were living in Louisville, Kentucky, which is a very low cost of living place. It's a great place to invest because housing prices aren't crazy. So those are some of the advantages we had. So it only took a few years for each of us to save a little chunk of money to invest into a down payment. Our first duplex, our first rental property in Louisville, Kentucky, cost $100,000. And by then, we each had $10,000 in savings that we pooled together to get to that $20,000 down payment. So that's how we started. If I knew then what I know now, I realized I could have started way sooner by doing house hacking and by doing the burst strategy. But we didn't do that. We just we came up with down payments one after the other. And in terms of how we went from one property to over uh, almost 40 units, it was six buildings total, but like 38 doors, something like that. We did a few things. Well, first of all, we didn't give into lifestyle creep. So that first duplex, we were cash flowing $500 a month immediately. And some people would say, okay, pat on, pat on our back. Let's go spend this. Let's go live it up. We can afford to increase our lifestyle a little bit. And we just stayed really strict and really disciplined. And we decided we were going to save 100% of that cash flow to put towards the next down payment. And then the other thing is that I had my real estate license. And this is really the key for us because I would represent myself as the buyer's agent on all of our deals. I never had the license for having clients. It was just for my own purposes as an investor. So every time we would buy a property, we would like deplete our savings. I mean, it was it was risky for sure, but I knew I was going to get a commission check back for thousands of dollars. And on that first duplex, I think I made like $2,000 in commission check, but that was immediately put into savings for the next down payment. And then, you know, by that time, my husband was making like right at six figures. So our combined income, we were just able to save really aggressively. And that's how we could come up with 20% down payments one after the other. And at what point in this journey did things kind of flip where you stop being so frugal and you start actually enjoying it, spending it? Because, you know, I get the feeling that now that you've got this consistent, you know, if you're talking $15,000 a month in passive income, you probably spend a little bit more of it now. 
We will be right back after a quick word from our sponsor, Posty. In the competitive world of advertising, marketers are always looking for an edge to accelerate growth, reach new customers, and get measurable results. Today, they're turning to the best kept secret in marketing, direct mail reinvented for the digital world by Posty. Posty has transformed direct mail, aka physical mail, by adding all of the direct marketing capabilities found in channels like Facebook, Google, and YouTube. Email marketing has honestly become a huge strategy in a lot of my online businesses, and I was blown away at how similar Posty's platform was to some of these other digital email service providers. You can target people based on their behavior on your website. You can target people based on purchase history. You can target people based on demographics, location, all of this amazing stuff in Posty's platform. Posty basically allows you to run direct mail like a digital marketer. Hurry and get your free Posty demo today by visiting posty.com slash fyshow. That's posty.com slash fyshow for a free Posty demo. Posty, P-O-S-T-I-E, direct mail reinvented for the digital world. Yeah, and I would say only like last year, probably. Last year, my husband and I moved from Kentucky to Colorado. And, you know, it's a higher cost of living state to live in for sure. But, you know, I remember finally making some purchases last year that I never would have years ago. My husband bought a new mountain bike. And then this summer, we decided to travel around the West. So that's what we've been doing for the last four months. And actually through travel hacking, we really haven't spent more than we do than we did before. It's interesting because I I don't think overall our lifestyle has changed a ton. We could certainly be spending like four or five times the amount of money that we're spending now, but I just don't feel the need. You know, I think there's this interesting activity that we like to do. And it's where you ask yourself, what are like the top 10 things that bring you value and bring you fulfillment? And if you write those things down, like for us, you know, it's spending time together, traveling home, traveling around the West, hiking, bringing our dog on a hike, whatever. Most of those things don't require money. It's about your relationships and it's about how you spend your time. So once we kind of put that into perspective, we just realize we don't really feel the need to increase our lifestyle a bunch. And there's no right or wrong. Some people would decide to do that and that would be great and we could. But I think it's important to live in alignment with your values and to know what those values are. I love that. And I actually did that same exercise not too long ago with my girlfriend. We each made a list independently and then compared them. And it was kind of what you're talking about now, Rachel, like most of the stuff that made us happy didn't cost much money, if none at all, which is just awesome. I do want to kind of talk about some of those things, though. I do want to dig in. I think it's going to be interesting to the things that you are spending more money on that, you know, Rachel from five years ago couldn't even imagine that. Oh, my gosh, I bought this thing because I still catch myself now. I'm like, I'll opt for the cheaper thing, even though I, I probably should get the better thing that costs a little bit more. My frugal roots just they're dug too deep. Oh, my gosh. I could think of so many examples. One, this is going to sound so silly, but one example, and this just shows you how my mindset has like changed over time, but I have makeup brushes and they had, you know, you're supposed to clean them, whatever, however often. And I hadn't done it for a while. And then in one of our traveling from one state to another, something had gotten all over them. And I was just like, ew, like, I don't want to clean these. What if I just literally throw them out and order new makeup brushes? And then immediately I was like, Rachel, that is insane. Like, why would you do that? That's so crazy. Like, just clean them. But it's funny because four years ago, I never would have thought I'm just going to throw these out and order new ones. It doesn't, even if it's just 30 bucks, what a waste. But now because I have more money and I've, I have this freedom, that's something I can do. And I know that's such a small, silly example, (laughs) but that's exactly how I think now. One thing I did over the summer though, 
I had my biggest launch ever. I launched a $50,000 course and it was a really big achievement for me. And my friend was like, well, how are you going to celebrate? And I was like, celebrate? Like, what do you mean? And I realized that I hadn't ever really celebrated any of my achievements. And there's these rings that I had admired for years that I, I follow online, this jewelry. And it's so unlike me to order jewelry. But I finally decided, you know, I've been l- looking at these for two years and I'm going to order some for myself. And so I finally did. They're not in yet, but I did this just the other week. And I still think it's just an insane amount of money that I spent. And I'm still like, oh my gosh. But it's also like, you know what? This is what you work so hard for. Like you earned this, you deserve this. And it, it is important to celebrate those milestones. So proud of myself for making progress, but there's still progress to be made. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, Cody and myself can both definitely resonate with that feeling. I know people have asked me, like, eh, you know, if you were rich, whatever that definition is, you know, like, what would you do different? You know, I'm, my mind goes like, man, I'd get guacamole every time I go to Chipotle. <laughs> like, I'd never <laughs> skip guacamole. <laughs> That's perfect. Yes. <laughs> I still don't order drinks at restaurants. I still just get water. Like, I just don't think that's ever going to change. I don't know. There'll be a day where Diet Coke is like a, a given. Yeah, I get the Diet Coke. Yeah. When you can get the Diet Coke every time you're going out to a restaurant, you know you've made it. You know you've made it. You know you've made it. So, like, I feel like it's always, you know, you, you've done so much. You've got the rental properties. You've got the business you've built up. You just mentioned that you launched, you know, a new major course. But you don't say, you know, you're saying, like, you don't really need to spend a lot because the things that you enjoy don't really cost money. So, I mean, what is next? Like, what are you thinking about doing next? What is kind of the next big milestone you want to hit? What is the next luxury you want to like treat yourself with? Yeah, it's so interesting because at one point I was so driven by money and it's because I didn't have any and I, you know, I was hustling and I was, I felt so broke and I just wanted to have an abundance of money. And so that was my motivation. And now I'm not motivated by money anymore. But for me, I love being an entrepreneur. I love creating and growing. And like, I want to see how far I can take this business. I'm trying to hire people on my team right now. And it's it's just this challenge with myself. Like, that's what keeps me going now. This, this exciting thing of like, how far can I take this? How big can this be? And also the passion for helping people with their money has never left. Like, we are in a financial education crisis. And at no point in our lives are we taught how to manage our money. And then we're left as young adults to try to figure it out all on our own, which is so unfair. I mean, it's no wonder I see so many young people and women struggle with feelings of guilt and shame and embarrassment when it comes to their money, which sucks because it's not their fault they weren't given the resources they need to succeed. So it's like I still have that fire and that passion for helping young people. And I want them to empower themselves because I truly believe that anyone, no matter their age or their income, can achieve financial independence. So that's what kind of motivates me to this day. I don't know if I have any like revenue goals or course goals. I'm just I'm just having a good time traveling and hiking and creating things. <laughs> Can't knock that one bit. As a course guy myself, though, I do want to dig in just for a second because I want to scratch my own personal itch. Is the course you're talking about, is it the get your financial shit together? Is that kind of your bread and butter? That was the first one I made. So that is... It's something I designed to kind of go along with Money Honey. And I launched that in 2020, right during COVID. And it was this whole thing where I was like, this might be the stupidest thing I ever do. But it did well. The one I launched over the summer just a few months ago is my new rental property boot camp, which is about real estate investing. Because that's all I get asked about now. And that's the other thing, is that you need to pay attention to what people are asking you about. You know, what, what do people come to you for advice on? 
and then create a product around that. That's how you're helping somebody solve their problem. So that type of advice is the exact thing I was going to ask about next, because we do have people in our community, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people who own small businesses who may want to create either, even if it's not a full blown online course, whether it's a mini course, a freebie, a workshop, a mastermind, like whatever, whatever the thing might be. And I think that you've kind of honed your craft and figured out what's worked for online courses, what hasn't worked, what have you maybe wasted a bunch of time on, what has been a really high ROI, just general tips and advice for people who are thinking of creating something in the digital product space. Okay, so for an online course specifically, I would say one of the most important things is to pre-sell it. So don't go create the course because you risk spending a ton of potentially money, a ton of time into something that maybe it doesn't sell. So what I've always done instead is I've reached out to my audience because by the time I created a course, I had a small platform from all the readers of my books. So I just started listening to them and I started noting what are the questions I'm getting asked about over and over again? And then can I create something that will help people work through these questions? So that's what I've done for both of them. And you know, sometimes I've even sent out surveys to my email list saying, hey, I have this idea for something I think could help you, but could you help me hone in on this? And so I'll ask for their feedback about, hey, what would you, what would be most valuable to you? What is your biggest obstacle? Like I'll just ask them directly so that I can solve their problems for them. Um, so that's what I did with Get Your Financial Shit Together. I I thought I could create something. I knew what the problems were. So I put together a curriculum and a sales page, but I didn't create the course yet. And then I started saying, hey, I'm going to do the beta round for this course. I'm going to price it. This will be the cheapest that it ever is. And if you decide to go through this course with me, knowing that this is the first time I'm doing it, it might not be the best, but I need you to give me the feedback and you're going to have access to the final version of the course. So it's a win-win for everybody. That's what I basically did. I sold it to my email list and my social media. And the beta round of that course was in April 2020. And it was $177. And I got 50 beta members. So I think it was like $9,000 or something that I made. Um, I hadn't even created the course yet. So it was dripped out week after week. So every week I would script the videos, record the videos and edit the videos. And like, that's all I did for eight weeks straight because it was an eight week course. So that was how the beta round went. And then every week in order for them to access the next week's videos, they had to fill out a feedback survey and say, hey, what did you like? What didn't you like? So I was getting feedback from them the whole time. And then after I got all the feedback and after the beta round finished, I kind of spent a a few months revamping it. I probably re-recorded half of the videos. I redid a lot of things to make the final version of the course the strongest that it could possibly be. And that's how it came about. So now the course is priced at between $297 to $497, depending on where and when people sign up, because I offer different discounts and everything. But yeah, it's been something that's been a huge revenue earner. I probably make this is probably just a guess, but like 40 or 50 grand from that course per year. And so it sounds like you already had an existing platform when you launched that very first course. You obviously had an even bigger platform with the second course. What other types of lead generation strategies were you using? Were you giving away freebies to affiliates? Did you have affiliates? Did you have paid ads? Like was it organic SEO traffic? I'd just love to hear some of the different strategies. And I'm sure this can extend far beyond online courses, but that you're using to drive traffic to this stuff. Okay, great question. So to this day, I have not done any paid advertising at all. So all of my marketing efforts have been organic 
efforts. I do have a website. It's not really anything special. I doubt that I'm getting a lot of leads from it. I mean, I need to do a lot of work on that for sure, because that's a big opportunity. But I would say the biggest thing I've done is getting onto podcasts. Because when you first launch something, a book or a course, whatever, you know, you, t- you want all your family and friends to buy it. And of course, they're going to support you. But then it's like, well, how do I keep getting in front of new people? Like, even if you do have a big platform, how can you keep growing that platform and getting in front of new people? And what I realized with being on a podcast is that it's a win-win. It's cross-promotion. I'm bringing my audience to you. You're bringing your audience to me. We both get to grow our platforms. So I, I did a huge effort in 2020 and kind of I guess I kind of went on this podcast tour is what people call it, but I got on over a hundred podcasts that year. And that is the year that it was my first full year working for myself. And it was the year that my revenue went from 25,000 in 2019 to 125,000 in 2020. So five times as much. I mean, I definitely had a lot more time to put into growing my business, but I do think that podcast guesting was a huge part of that. So you really need to ask yourself, where can I continue to get in front of new people that might be interested in my stuff? It could be Clubhouse, where people are bringing groups of audience, you know, listeners together. It could be virtual events. It could be radio, TV. There's a lot of ways to do it. But I really have loved podcasting. And so we were talking about these different money streams. And, you know, earlier we mentioned several times, right, passive income, passive income. But once you get one of these courses made, is it? like extremely passive or do you feel like that you have to do a lot of kind of caring and feeding and updating to keep things relevant? I feel like once you get past the beta round, you can set it up very passive. You have to be intentional about it. And and that's one thing about passive income is that you don't just snap your fingers and create passive income, right? Passive income takes time or money to create sometimes both. And I look at it in two stages. Stage one is where you're putting all this effort into creating this passive income stream. So for Money Honey, I spent nine months writing the book and editing the book and doing a marketing plan. And now it's much more passive. And I don't really do anything except for get on podcasts to promote it. And same thing with the course. You know, I spent months building it, doing the beta, redoing the beta to turn it into the final program. And because of the way I set it up, it is very passive now. So You know, I have a series of Facebook posts and a series of emails that I just reschedule every time once people are signed up. The least passive thing about it right now is that I'm doing webinars to promote it each time because I'm facilitating it as a group. But I'm going to take it evergreen soon where anybody can sign up on their own at any time of the year. And I'm not going to be really facilitating it live. So it'll be even more passive then. So I think if you have the right intentions and you think about the structure from the beginning, it can be a very passive source of income. And how about in terms of like, whether it's fostering group engagement or maybe running a community where people ask Q&A, what are you doing for that type of stuff? Because I see that as one of the biggest pain points for course creators who just get inundated with whether it's personal emails or just like way too many people hitting them up in the Facebook group or whatever mechanism they've created to kind of field questions and help people along the way. So with the beta round, I had the Facebook group and I still have it. And one thing I learned is that allowing every member to post in the Facebook group is kind of a disaster and it makes it feel very chaotic and disorganized for other members. So I've turned off, like people can't post in the group, but they can comment. So I'm the one posting and then they can comment under things. And that that keeps it a lot more manageable. And the other thing is, is that you just have to look at your business as a whole and think about how can you delegate some of these things so that you're not the one doing it. So it, it comes down also to just being like a 
an intentional business owner and not having to work in the business, but working on the business. So once I hired a virtual assistant, she was kind of doing all the backend stuff with getting the email scheduled, getting the Facebook post scheduled, doing the turnover process between rounds of the course. And that for me is when it truly turned into something that I felt was like 95% passive. And you just mentioned that, you know, you hired a virtual assistant. I know earlier you were talking about building this out even more, building a bigger team. What kind of people are you trying to bring in to help build this? Right now I'm looking for a social media manager because believe it or not, I'm still doing all of my own content and it takes a lot of time. And I think it can be such a helpful thing because I have so much content out there at this point. They don't need to create new content. They just need to repurpose what I have. So I just need somebody who can do that for me. I'm also looking for another virtual assistant. And then what's the last one? Oh, an email copywriter. So those are the three positions I'm hiring for because those things take so much of my time. And if I want to keep growing the business, then I need to really focus on the revenue generating activities, which is writing a new book, creating a new course, offering a new program. So that's what I'm trying to do to free up my time. And of those VA jobs you just mentioned, is there anyone in particular that you think has like higher impact than you might have expected? Like whether it's Instagram or whether it's a certain email campaign that you have or whether it's a YouTube video or whatever it might be. You know, I was hung up for so long on hiring a social media manager because I didn't see how it was going to drive revenue, right? So if somebody was going to charge me $500 a month or $1,000 a month for social media content creation, my whole thing was, well, how are you going to make me $1,000 a month more than in what you're doing? And that kind of held me back for a while, but I realized I was looking at it the wrong way. Because it's not about them generating revenue for me. It's about me freeing up my time. Like, is my time worth something? Yes, absolutely it is. So it might not have an ROI from a financial perspective, but it has an ROI from a time perspective. Time is your most valuable resource. It's the most scarce resource. And that's the thing that I want to free up. So that is how I view the social media management thing. In terms of what is adding the most value to me, I think it would be the virtual assistant who handles my emails and my calendar. Because email, you guys probably agree, is like the bane of my existence. <laughs> and I get so many inquiries from people. And obviously, like we can't just help people for free all day because we don't have enough time to do that. And our time is worth something. So somebody who can take care of those inquiries for me is very, very valuable. And we've had people in the podcast who've, you know, created entire sites around helping you find VAs. How did you go about that? The first one that I hired was through word of mouth. So it was somebody my friend was already using. She's another amazing content creator. And she really loved this person. And I hired her and she was great. And then earlier this year, she had a baby and then she just realized it was too much. So unfortunately, she stopped working for me. So I've been without a VA for a few months now. I don't know how to find, you know, that's the hardest thing about growing a business is finding good, capable people. Like it is just so much harder than I ever would have imagined. And so that's that's honestly my biggest struggle and my biggest challenge right now. But I have the applications up. So somebody apply and please help me take my money. <laughs> Amen to that. It is definitely hard to find good workers. I've been struggling with that for the past couple of years, trying to hire different VAs and having to let some go. Last thing I do want to touch on here, and you kind of have a spin on the FIRE acronym, the Financial Independence Retire Early. And it seems like right now, maybe you're not, you know, 100% retired. It seems like you kind of have your hand in all these different buckets. I guess one, could you talk about the FIRE acronym that you've created and you have a whole mastermind around it? 
And then also, do you consider yourself retired? Okay, great question, Cody, because a lot of my readers will be like, well, Rachel, you're not retired. You're clearly still working. And I'm always like, well, yes, I am. And the thing is, I've used the word retired and financially independent interchangeably. And maybe that's a mistake on my part. I certainly have never wanted to mislead anybody. But to me, retired means that you don't have to work anymore. And so now it's all about working when, where, and if I want. And that's how I view it. So yes, I am working, but it's because I want to. I don't have to anymore. My business is the thing that brings me fulfillment, and I will never stop working on it. Like I, you know, some people retire and they can do the thing where they sit on the beach or they play golf all day. And that's great. Like seriously, I admire them for that. I just get bored so easily. Like I just always want to be creating something, building something, adding value in some way. So I guess I would consider myself financially independent or retired if you use the words interchangeably like I do. And then the, the acronym I came up with for my mastermind is instead of financial independence, retire early, I have said it's financial independence through real estate. And not that that's the only way that I achieve financial independence, but I do think that more average men and women have become millionaires through real estate than through anything else. So if there's one surefire way to achieve financial independence, I would say that it's real estate. And that's that's probably what I spend most of my time teaching now because people are so interested in the topic and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And I think we'll let you slide, even if maybe you're not technically retired. It seems like you're doing pretty well for yourself. <laughs> And I mean, we've covered like a ton of stuff on this. And if and you've mentioned all these new projects that you're you're working on, we're sure you're going to continue to grow the business. For the people who are listening to this episode and want to check in more on you and what's going on, where's the best place for them to, to contact you or to at least get some resources? Yeah, thank you. So I'm on TikTok and Instagram. If you just search Money Honey Rachel. And then what I'd love to do for your listeners is if anyone wants to download my passive income starter kit. I will give that for free. So they can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com slash bonus to download that. Awesome. Well, everyone check that out because passive income is the way to live. It That's is right. one of the best things that all of us have discovered. It does take work upfront, but once you do the upfront work, Rachel, I know you mentioned the those couple of years were were pretty hellish, but now you're now you're living lavish. Now you got the passive income stream, so it's definitely worth it at the end. So go check out that guide. And Rachel, just want to seriously thank you so much for coming on. We definitely, after we connected on Doc G's podcast, Earn and Invest, I'm like, we got to have her on the show. Such an amazing story. And just thank you so much. Thank you both so much. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thebuyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.